Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and today we are delighted to have as our guest Mr. Jonathan Lehman. Jonathan is the editorial director for Nine Marks, which exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches. Jonathan is also an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and he's the author of numerous books, including The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love, Don't Fire Your Church Members, The Case for Congregationalism, and a great book on preaching called Reverberation. Jonathan, how are you, brother? Brother, I'm well. Thank you for having me. Good to hear your voice. I'm grateful for what you do for the church. So thank you for all the resources you provide. Oh, thank you, man. I'm so glad you can be with us today. Uh, so I want to start out by asking you um, something that will be a complete curveball for you, uh, the topic of church discipline. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, you, I, lo- I love having that reputation. Are, are you just... Oh, you're the church discipline expert. So like, there's an expertise you want. That's right. Are you just a mean guy? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why is such okay, a... Okay, true story. Okay. True story. When Mark Dever first asked me to write about church membership or church discipline, he said I would be good on that topic because I'm nice. Oh, really? No. (laughs) Let the world, I'm not making that up. Okay. Let the world know I'm actually a nice guy. Well, I I know you personally, and I I agree you are a nice guy. Um, But I do want to know, and I think our our listeners are going to want to know, why such a huge emphasis, or what seems like a huge emphasis, on biblical church discipline today? Well, I think the larger interest is in the just whole area of the church's authority and questions of membership and membership and discipline. Membership and discipline are two sides of the same coin. And what what I'm what <clears throat> Nine Marks has been responding to, Mark Tever and, and, and myself have been responding to, among other things, is the individualistic and consumeristic nature of culture generally, and how that affects impacts. Christians specifically. So, uh, once upon a time, Protestants well understood the, the fact that we're called to be Christians together with a people, gathering in bodies, giving oversight and affirmation to one another. But increasingly these days, we approach our churches like we approach country clubs or shopping clubs, like going for the benefits. If I don't like the benefits, I take my purchase back to the checkout counter and I shop elsewhere. Right, right, and it's, it's sort of in response to that that you have individualistic Christian lives where where the body of Christ is is a matter of picking and choosing, and is often just too often absent. Yeah. So those those are the larger cultural things that we're responding to. Church discipline is one piece of that. Yeah, right? uh, that that's not the exclusive thing to focus on, but it is one piece, and often certainly it gets the most attention because it's. In some ways, the, 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 the hardest to think about, and it goes against our flesh. People don't like being held accountable for their sin, and church discipline holds people accountable for the whole Christians for their sin. That, that rubs us the wrong way. So, yeah, it can, it can provoke some attention. Yeah. Well, it, it, it just seems odd to me, um, but for a long time it, it wouldn't have seemed odd uh, to me, but it seems odd to me today um, that these things that we see in the Scriptures— seems so offensive, um, and I think largely because culturally we don't practice them, 
And so when someone raises the issue, hey, this is in the Bible, <laughs> and it's a pretty clear teaching for you know the the order and the organization of of a visible community, uh, you know, for a church. And we're not doing this. We should do this. And people kind of you know get their hackles up, and and it's not because the thing yeah. is unbiblical. It's because we just haven't done it. It seems weird and new and strange, I guess. Yeah. Well, if you look at it. it, it Society is conflicted about this. Christians are conflicted about this because, on the one hand, if you look at other organizations, every organization has requirements for for, for, for membership and matters for which a, a person would be disciplined. So, if you have a malpracticing doctor, you know the American Medical Association is going to remove his license, or, or a lawyer, the Bar Association is going to remove his his, his um, membership in the bar. You know. The NBA has certain criteria that when a player goes against them, that the player is going to be disciplined. So most other organizations, every other organization, there's some criteria of membership, some criteria of discipline. When we get to the church, though, we're not used to talking that way, at least for the last century or so. Churches practiced up to the 19th century. 20th century began to fall away. And I, I think it also... Um, uh, depends on how we understand love, because we understand love in our culture today to be to be something that's all about self-expression, self-definition, self-discovery. Insofar as we expect churches to be loving, uh, discipline just doesn't conform to our, our conceptions, our modern conceptions of love. Um, why would you hinder my ability to define myself, express myself, discover myself, just, you know... Uh, and for you to do that as unloving, churches are supposed to be loving, you know, therefore don't discipline. Yeah. Don't put up criteria for membership, anything like that. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff in the cultural water that just makes it a very difficult thing for us to understand these days. Yeah, I think like misconceptions of grace. So if a church has, uh, you know, 600 members on, on the roll and 300 uh, and regular attendance. That's a problem, right? And and why is that a problem? Yeah, it's certainly a problem because those 300 absent members, the ones that are on the roll, but they're not there, well, by being on the roll, what is the church doing? The church is saying, hey, we, we, we affirm these people as believers, right? That's what church membership is, and kind of its, it's, it's barest essence. It's the church's affirmation of someone's profession of faith, that they are a follower of Jesus, that they are a Jesus representative, right? They, they wear the Jesus name tag. So the church is saying about those 300 absent members, hey, they wear the Jesus name tag. They're one of us. They're a citizen of the kingdom. But of course, they're not there, so the church can't really make that affirmation with any integrity. Those people might be living in all sorts of awful ways, or you know, totally just uninterested in Jesus sort of ways. And yet they're affirmed before, you know, non-Christian community that, hey, these are Christians. Um, plus, so, so on the one hand, you, you risk leading non-Christians astray about these people. Second, you risk leading the, the individuals themselves astray. So the church is not uh, exercising any kind of meaningful with integrity oversight over these individuals. Nonetheless, they've given them the Jesus name tag by, by, by calling and affirming them as Christians. And those people might think, hey, I'm fine with Jesus. But what if they're self-deceived? What if, you know, what if they have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus in, in their life, but they, but they use words of profession and they're self-deceived? Maybe they're even going to hell. 
and yet that church has given them a false assurance of their profession of faith, and that is just a tragic situation. You know, God, John says, don't don't say you love God if you don't love your brother. Where here you have a bunch of people who who aren't in any meaningful sense loving their brothers and sisters in Christ by joining together with them, yet they claim to love God. Well, that's just a very dangerous place to be in. So the church that lets 300 people be on their rolls, even though it can give no account for them, is not, in fact, a loving church. And that's something we need to get our heads around. Yeah. Hey, let's take a coffee break here and hear from our host, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Philosophy degree program is designed to equip leaders interested in building up the church. The Ph.D. Biblical Studies program at Midwestern Seminary provides opportunities for advanced research and preparation in theology in an environment passionate about God's primary plan for the advancement of the gospel, the local church. Choose from multiple emphases and let your advanced degree open up new opportunities for ministry in our rapidly changing world. With our modular program of study, you can remain in your current ministry setting. But we've also recently introduced the residency, an experiential component to the Ph.D. track, where local doctoral students receive one-on-one coaching and mentoring and a community context in which to bolster their studies. Get your Ph.D. today for the church. Now, back to the podcast. One thing I've appreciated uh, from you, from from Mark, from Nine Marks in general, um, is really just the help, the good practical biblical help um, with, you know, looking at these larger issues of church polity, church structure, um, super helpful for me in, in, in looking at, um, you know, the pro, you know, the quote unquote problem of church membership um, at the churches I've ministered to and that sort of thing. Why do you think churches today just, uh, you know, looking at the bigger picture, not just church discipline, but polity, um, you know, membership, organization, uh, leadership, that sort of thing. Why do churches, evangelical churches today, struggle with this so often? Yeah, there's a number of rivers that flow into this particular, you know, lake. Uh, very briefly, you know, number one, you've had Bible scholars for several centuries saying the Bible doesn't say anything normative about church government, church polity, church membership. So a number of Paul, you know, so I would say in some ways a number of Bible scholars are responsible. I think they're mistaken. Number two, um, in, in, in the 20th century, especially various church growth uh, movements and books and leaders and writings have become very prominent as, as modern marketing has taken hold uh, in the 20th century in the business community. Sure enough, churches lag behind what businesses are doing in the marketplace by about 30 years. You know, so if you go to the early 20th century, you had businesses advertising, here's a Model T, buy the Model T, it's good for your family. Well, a few decades after that, churches began advertising. In the 1950s and or 1930s and 40s, uh, businesses began to do consumer-driven marketing, uh, in which it's not just, here's the Model T, it's good for everybody, but, you know, here's your, here's an Oldsmobile, it's not your father's Oldsmobile. Right? I'm appealing to a certain demographic. I'm appealing to a certain generation. So it's not Coca-Cola, it's Pepsi, which is for a new generation. Well, sure enough, a few years after that, churches begin marketing themselves to certain, demogra- certain demographics. You know, so you go around asking your non-Christian neighbors, you know, hey, what do you want in a church? And then we design our churches around that. Okay, so these kind of church growth mechanisms have grown up, blossomed in the 20th century, sort of following the marketplace. Um, 
And when you're when you're asking non-Christians uh, or young, weak Christians, how should we design the church? What are you not doing? Well, you're not asking the Bible, right? What does what does the Bible say we should do uh, as a church? How often and where, whether we should gather together, uh, whether we should focus on these things or focus on those things. Um, so, so somewhere along the way, church leaders just stopped asking the question, well, what does the Bible actually say? I mean, preachers know they need to preach Bible. That's good. Praise God. But they've lost track of asking the Bible what it says about organizing our lives together. One last thing I would say is, and let's be honest, matters of church government and ordinances and polity are often things Christians dispute, right? They get into arguments over baptism, paedo-baptism, congregational rule, elder rule, bishops, presbyteries, you know. So good Christians disagree on these things. So why do we want to talk about the stuff that makes us disagree? Why can't we just talk about the stuff like the gospel that's essential for salvation on which we agree? So we have the gospel, which is essential. Let's talk about it. And then we have everything else which is kind of unimportant. Let's not talk about that. Right. Well, in the process, the danger of that is the church gets lost. The local church gets lost. And the local church and its structures and its governance and its membership and discipline are not essential for salvation, but they are important. Important for what? Well, for preserving and protecting the gospel. So what you have is this virtuous cycle in Scripture between the gospel and the people of the gospel. The gospel creates the gospel people, and then those gospel people in their life, their ordered life together, protects and displays the gospel. So not essential for salvation, no, but important for protecting and preserving the gospel. Yeah. So for these reasons, it's worth having these tough, sometimes we're going to disagree, conversations about church order, church structure, membership, discipline, and so forth. Yeah, no, I think what you're touching on here, especially the, you know, the orientation around the gospel and what the gospel does, the centrality of you know the finished work of Christ um, is is really key uh, to the conversation here. Um, I heard Mark once say that the greatest threat to the gospel, specific to today, is the indirect challenge of pragmatism among evangelicals. I think that speaks a little bit to what you were touching on with some of the you know business practices. You know, certainly there are things we can learn. I think from the common grace, uh, you know, organizationally, but sure. so often, no you know, the, the prevailing spirit or the prevailing vision we have uh, tends to displace what the Bible has, has actually given us, what God has, you know, stewarded us. Why, spiritually speaking, um, is pragmatism a, a big problem? Like, what, what is pragmatism, first of all, or how would you define it? And, and why is that a problem if, if we're being pragmatic in our approach to uh, Christianity? Yeah, I mean, pragmatism is just simply of the idea of making decisions based on what works. So, hey, if, if this works, uh, let's, it must be legitimate and go ahead and do it. And certainly another word for pragmatism is just wisdom, right? So, so all pragmatism is not a bad thing in the way that wisdom is not a bad thing. There's, there's lots of things in the life of the church where you need wisdom or you can use some measure of pragmatism to decide should we do this or not do this. So, for instance, the, the Bible commands us to preach and to teach. Okay, well, how do we do that? Do we do a Sunday school? Do we do small groups? Do we only do the main services? Well, I think, you know, some measure of wisdom, and let's even say pragmatism, is necessary for answering those kinds of questions. Pragmatism becomes a problem when 
uh, it causes either to neglect scripture or prioritize man's wisdom over scripture. That's when it becomes a problem, right? And frankly, the argument that just becomes something works, uh, or just, or let me put it like this, just because God uses something is not necessarily argument, an argument to use that thing. Yeah. So God uses wicked sinners, God uses donkeys, God uses Pharaoh, God uses all kinds of stuff. That doesn't necessarily mean we should use those things. So Christians should first go to Scripture and say, what does God have to do? And then how we accomplish some of those things, yeah, we need wisdom, prudence, judgment, you know, pragmatic skill in knowing how to employ those things. Sure. Is that is that answering your question? I think it does. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, if I were, um, you know, if we were having this conversation more extended, I would, you know, make a distinction between uh, what's, you know, practicality and, and pragmatism simply. Um, I mean, I, I agree with the way that... Um, uh, you know, you're working out the sort of, you know, discernment of when to be pragmatic and when not to. For me, it's just the, you know, the, you know creating a formula out of things that are practical. There's no uh-huh. denying, you know, that the Bible's practical, um, you know, to apply wisdom um, and discernment to these different matters that the Bible is either not clear on uh, or just doesn't speak to. Um, but pragmatism to me is sort of like when you're ruled by practicality, uh, rather than when the practicality is an application of what should be ruling us, I, I think, um, you know, the spirit of the gospel. Yeah, can, can I say one other thing on it? Yeah, please do. I think I think pragmatism becomes especially dangerous when we start to employ whatever means possible to attract people to the gospel Yeah. and not rely on the power. Of, instead, we rely on consumer appetite. Yeah. And, you know, you've often heard the phrase, what you win them with, you win them too. Well, it's easy to draw a crowd, right? Just put on a movie or get a good show or a magician. You can draw a crowd, but you just need to be very careful to do that because you can't create life through those things. You can only create life through the Word, right, according to Scripture. Right. And so churches that (laughs) sort of do whatever works to draw a crowd often build shallow churches, weak churches, sometimes not churches. They have a crowd, they call it a church, but it's, that's why I'm going to say, hey, look, do what the Bible says. Let's preach the Word, preach the Gospel, sing the Word, read the Word, and let that draw the crowd, yeah. as it were. Yeah, to me, one of the most, um, you know, cautionary, sort of scary, uh, you know, moments in the book of Revelation is is just, you know, in in the letter, you have the reputation of being alive, uh, but you are not, or, you know, Ezekiel's, uh, in a valley of dry bones, they all you know, sort of come to life, but there's no breath in them, uh, which sort of tells me or at least indicates that it's possible to look alive and and not be, yeah. or, or to have this sort of visible image of success. Um, and so to me, the question of pragmatism gets down to, you know, on the church level, what are you trusting to be power? You know, what is it that actually changes people, well, saves right. people, that sort of thing? Okay, so, um, let's shift well, gears right. here just for a second. Um, I... I was surprised and encouraged. Um, I, I'm not sure why surprised, but in, encouraged and found it intriguing. Uh, a few weeks ago, was nosing around on the Nine Marks site, uh, came across a Nine Marks mailbag, which is maybe my favorite feature uh, on the site, where people essentially write letters in, and uh, you very pastorally and and um, kindly, um, even if concisely, respond to these things. And one of the questions was. Um, 
I told you. I told you I was nice. <laughs> you are nice. You are nice, Jonathan. <laughs> I'll just keep affirming that if if, if that's going to be helpful Thank to you. you. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm a little insecure about that. <laughs> no, it's okay. Hey, there is no <laughs> condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, and this was an affirming place, I can tell. That's right. One of the questions was about how Capitol Hill um, identifies elders. And I think the question, I'm, I don't have it in front of me, but the question had to do with your process uh, for training, that sort of thing. And I don't know if they were trying to tie it into the internship program uh, that you have there or not. But your answer was quite surprising to me, um, not in a you know discouraging or disappointing way. Um, I just found it really intriguing which was that you don't have a training program um, for elders. So I want to let you, um, if if you recall this you know, question and answer, um, you know, explain the process, as it were, for Capitol Hill in identifying, establishing elders. Why don't you have a, you know, a pastoral residency program, or why isn't the internship program an on-ramp to eldership, that sort of thing? Yeah, gosh, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I'm sure it was very wise. Um, <laughs> it was. <laughs> um, well, no, we, we we don't have a training program for elders. Uh, what we're looking to do is affirm men who are already elderly. Right. Right? They're already living above approach. They're already kind of the, the, the people the sheep are going to with their questions about the Word and to follow their example and their men who we see discipling and discipling kind of a range across the congregation, not just people who look like them and are their age, but people who are uh, older and younger and different stages of life, and, you know, different ethnicities and so forth. So, so we look for guys who are just already doing that. They're acting like pastors. They seem to have a care for the sheep. They raise their hand in Sunday school class, you know, and don't ask the contentious question. They, they, they raise their hand to ask the hey, this will be helpful for everybody sort of question. That's just their, they have a shepherding presence. Uh, so that's what we're looking for. We're looking to affirm them. We're not, the training, think about for a second what an elder is. An elder is, in a sense, nothing more or less than an exemplary member. Right? Right. All the criteria that Paul lists to Titus and Timothy are basically things every Christian should have and be except for able to teach. So what an elder is, is a man who's basically just a good church member. And so what's the training for being a good church member? Listening to the Bible, fellowshipping with the saints, going to church, doing hospitality, sharing the gospel, making disciples, stuff like that. Yeah. So what, what, what's the training that you need there? We just, this is the ordinary ministry of the church that should be raising up your elders, right? So that's kind of that's kind of the first thing I would first, which is the second thing I would say. Another thing I would say, you want to be careful if you do have an elder training program, not to let guys think that, you know, hey, if they go through as a training program, then out pops an elder. Well, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> right. You, you know, you, you don't you don't want to create those expectations. And the third thing I would say in all of this is um, an elder's ministry is so tightly connected, or rather so tightly connects doctrine and life. Because it's my life which gives meaning to my doctrine and my words. As my sheep watch me, they see how I live out my words, and I, in a sense, my life defines those words for them. But how do you, how do you do that in a class? Yeah. Now, you, you know, you, you can use a class to go through 
so-and-so's book on elbowing, and that's useful, do that. You know, go through through so-and-so's theology, so-and-so's book on elders. That's all useful. But goodness gracious, being an elder is is a life, a doctrine life thing. And again, that's just not something you can do in eight weeks. Right. No, this is what, so I found the post. Yeah, yeah. and this is what you said in, in relation to that. Um, in considering the doctrine life and balance that, uh, you know, a kind of elder training program could facilitate, um, you say, so if you start some sort of training program, you'll need to work against sending the message that it's having the right doctrine, which really counts. Um, and, yeah. you know, without that uh, qualifying life. And, and one of the cautions you give um, is to see, um, you know, that people qualify without the special incentive um, that people, you know, as you said, um, in sort of your, you know, prefatory remarks in in, in the answer, um, who's already living uh, with the quality of of eldership uh, without the without the title, without the position? Um, you say in that part of this blog post, an elder is not a separate class of person; uh, rather, he's of the same class, a member, um, you know, but an exemplary, you know, version of that class, one who can be held up as an example. I just found that really, really helpful. Well, there was one occasion when my younger brother, Philip, when he first got to Capitol Hill Baptist, our church in, back in 2000, he was skipping church on one evening, and he bumped into the pastor, Mark, and Mark said, oh, were you at church on Sunday or church on Sunday night? And Philip's like, oh, no, I wasn't. Well, why not? Well, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and Philip at that point was a fairly immature and complacent Christian. And even in that state, Mark said to him, uh, do you aspire to be an elder? Hmm. And Philip will testify to you today that that really struck him. Like, why am, why am I not aspiring? Why am I being lazy and not aspiring to lead others? So there's a sense in which I think you want to kind of uh, get all the men in your church to want to aspire yeah. to be uh, to be leaders. Not that every man is going to be, not that every man is going to be qualified, not every man is going to be able to teach, so forth. But there's a sense in which if, if another, as I said, an exemplary member, yeah, this is not a special class for the, the you know, the super Christians. Right. This is for all the men in the church to aspire toward. Right. Hey, uh, Jonathan, man, I have uh, more questions for you, but we're out of time, and so I'd love to get you back some other time um, to catch up with these things, um, because you're so nice. You're just a nice guy. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> and we, God, need to, that's true. we need to spread some of that niceness around. Hey, thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, brother. Good time. We've been speaking with Jonathan Lehman, editorial director for Nine Marks, and you would be doing yourself and your church a huge favor by regularly visiting ninemarks.org and checking out the vast library of resources that are there. That's Nine Marks. Until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.